Welcome to Sales Talk for CEOs. I'm glad you're here. I'll be interviewing CEOs who have successfully scaled their B2B sales organization. In each episode, I'll start by uncovering the sales background of each CEO, dig into the strategies they use to build their sales organization, and wrap it up with what the future holds. We'll cover the good, the bad, and the ugly of scaling a sales organization. I'm your host, Alice Hyman. Welcome to the show today. I have Lars, who is uh, talking with me all the way from Copenhagen, and he is the CEO of Dream Data. Welcome, Lars. Hey, Alice. Thanks for having me on the show, and and really great to be joining you all the way from Copenhagen. Yeah, so it's what, about six o'clock at night there, right, you said, or... Yeah, it's six o'clock at night there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's a, it's uh, nine forty five a.m. my time, and um, oh. yeah, so quite a time zone difference. But thank you so much for for joining me, and I'm excited to have you share your journey uh, about how you and your co-founders built Dream Data and how you built your sales team. So let's start off just by having you tell everyone what does Dream Data do and who needs it. Yeah, let's start there. So the name almost says it. So we're about data and we do revenue attribution. So we help B2B companies understand the origins of their sales, mostly targeting marketing people in the B2B arc so that they can know what is actually driving sales of the things that they do. Yeah, which is super important because we're trying to spend our money wisely, especially when our companies are younger or if we've got investors funding us, right? We really want to make sure that our marketing spend and our sales focus is tuned in. And a lot of times we have all this data, but we really don't have the information that we need to direct exactly. our activity. That is exactly the point. Yeah. So, all right. You said you were about three years into this now, Lars. You before this, tell us what were you doing right before you got this great idea with your co-founders to go ahead and start a company? Yeah, and that's a good story because that's like like many companies that are founded from sort of suffering from a problem in a previous <laughs> company. I think it's a very common way yes. of starting a company. So we were working together in a growth stage company in Copenhagen. It's called um, Trustpilot, and it oh, is yeah. now like they IPO'd a couple of years ago. Maybe you know them. I do. In the yes. As well. Yeah, yeah. So we ran product and tech there, and it basically, you can say we had the issue of not understanding the impact of product in the buying mm. journey of our customers. And it was like we we offered the product for free, so it was a like very expensive part of our go to market. And not knowing the impact was really problematic. So we built sort of an internal solution for this, and at the same time thought, well, if there is not like, why isn't there a plug-and-play solution out there that can help people with this? Because it was, to be honest, a huge pain building that internal solution. So that's how we got started. Um, we were two of the three founders came from Trustpilot. And the third one, we actually, that was our beginning of the sales journey, you can say, because we were, of course, like, before building a product, our philosophy is you want to sell it because if you can't sell it, it's not really <laughs> worth building or trying to take to market. So right. that was what we were doing. So we basically, we duct taped, like we had done this sort of internal product and then we duct taped together something that could maybe sort of fix the problem to some extent. 
And then we were going around to other growth like growth stage startups and like growth stage companies in Copenhagen that we thought would have the problem, mm-hmm. try to pitch them and say, hey, don't you have this problem? We think it's a right. huge problem. Then we met Stefan. Then we met Stefan, who is the third founder, and he definitely had the problem. So he was the, he was the head of marketing of this company. And he, he got to a stage, he's a very, of course, insanely good marketer, but he sort of, you start off with a small spend, maybe you're doing like, $10,000 a month when you're a small company, that's what you're doing. You know pretty much how it works. But as that scales and maybe goes to 100K or maybe yeah, even beyond that, right? you lose track of what works. And that's the situation he was in. So, well, that was like the sales pitch we did to him, try to help him with that. And then he ended up joining the company. Uh-huh. So that's the sort of founding story of the three founders coming together, actually us trying to sell uh, to Stefan and him then instead becoming a co-founder. Yeah, so that was the start of the sales journey. The three of you, and you're like, okay, so we have this great idea. We know that people need it because we actually went out and asked them about it, and they told us that they did indeed. So uh, the three of you, did you self-fund it? How did you start up? Did you go out and look for money right away, or what did you do? So we, we went for money quite early, but not until we knew that we had what I would call sort of problem market fit. So we knew that, like, Going, for instance, to Stefan, that was an example, right? Yeah. Uh, figuring out that he would actually pay for this product. We did that to a number of companies, pitching, selling, learning that there was a market for it. Once we knew that, then we had to move sort of beyond the duct tape solution. So we raised a bit of money and hired a small engineering team, built a bit more of product. And then in that period, which was the first, say, 12 months of the company being more than just the three founders, that was what I would say we did founder-led sales. So that was me and Stefan primarily going out, pitching to companies, trying to sell the product um, and succeeding. Not like, you, you, you know, it's small. So you do, a, a, you do one sale, you celebrate, right? <laughs> you close a 30K deal and you go like, wow, that's the most amazing yeah, thing that ever happened. Yeah, right. so it's, uh, it, it's exciting. It's super exciting. Uh, so that was like the first year, I would say, was founder-led sales. So did you and Stefan and the other founder have any experience in selling before you started this company and went out to sell? No. No, I mean, <laughs> that's unfair because Stefan, Stefan has done sales before. Uh, so he has done sales, but in different different settings. So I think none of us had done what I would describe as like fairly complex B2B software sales. We'd never done that. Wow. So how did you figure it out? Like, you know, what did you do? Like, how did you approach it? I, I think so. S- selling as a founder is you have an unfair advantage, right? Because you have a lot of passion for the product and you have a very deep understanding of the problem. So I think founder-led sales and Stefan also had sort of the added <laughs> cheating factor of being a very well-known marketer in Copenhagen. So he had a good network and people trusted him. If he said this product actually solved that problem, right. they trusted him. So there is sort of a, an unfair factor there when you're doing founder-led sales. And that was then the, sort of when you we went from, okay, now we have closed a little more than $100,000 revenue. Then you go like, okay, now there is enough that we think there's more than just, say, problem fit there's also inkling of what you say like product market fit there's somebody who wants to buy the product and maybe you can try for a bit more scale 
then we went for a sales team, right? Then we raised more money again, mm-hmm. hired the first salespeople. And that was sort of transitioning from founder-led to, to professional sales. That was, that's been what we've been doing for the last 18 months. And that's like, that's been a super exciting journey. That's a big transition. And you're right, an exciting one. And it's always interesting to me when founders make that transition, I often hear them saying things like, oh my gosh, I outsell these salespeople every month. You know, why can't they sell as well as I can? And it's exactly what you mentioned earlier. You have a huge advantage when you are doing founder-led selling. I call it the entrepreneurial enthusiasm sale, right? Because you are the founder, you are the entrepreneur. You can convince people to do things. And of course, it's easy for you to get an appointment because you're a founder, right? And then when you transition to professional sales people coming in to do the sales, they have to build their reputation in the market. They have to build a, a pipeline of people that they're going to you know, speak to, companies that they're going to yeah. approach. There's a lot of work to do to get set up to do sales at scale. So how did you, tell us about how you made that tr- transition from founder-led sales to a professional sales team, and what were some of the things that worked and what were some of the things that didn't work? There was a, a lot of learnings along the way and things that exactly that didn't work. So I think we, so we're a B2B SaaS company. And so we sell a B2B SaaS solution. We sell into other B2B SaaS companies, sort of mid-market SMB type of deal. Mm-hmm. Our ticket size would be like in the 20 to 40K. So it's sort of a, it's a decent ticket size. If you have a, an AE closing one or two deals a month, it's for our stage, it's good. So just to put some context around it. So that's, that's sort of the type of sale we do. The sales cycle would be approximately from sort of, we are very inbound led mm-hmm. in our motion. So from that inbound, uh, say demo request to actually closing the deal, typical sales cycle is like 60 days. Okay. So that's, just to give some perspective. Yeah. So we hired sales. Like So we went out immediately after sort of closing this initial 100K. And now we're going to hire sales. So we went looking for people. Uh, ideally, we wanted someone who had done exactly what we did. Mm-hmm. But I think the most fundamental thing we went looking for was entrepreneurial spirit. Because you are going to come into a company and to put it mildly, everything sucks, right? <laughs> there is no structure. Right. There are no processes. The pay is crap. Right. Like everything is, honestly, like everything is bad. So you have to love that sort of the, the concept of being part of building something. It's not like you're stepping into a beautiful sales org with a playbook. You are part of building it. You are literally sort of, you're living in the house while you're building it and remodeling everything at the same time. It's a horrible, like, it's a great experience. Like if you love it. So we went looking for people who would like that. And then we compromised on other things. And we got like two fantastic uh, reps. They're still with us and they're still sort of really performing insanely nice. well. So so they came in. Uh, so Laura, uh, who's one of them, she came from Gardner, where she'd done sort of like heavy enterprise yeah. stuff. That's her experience. So she was doing heavy enterprise sales from a very big brand, right? You call from Gardner and say, hey, let me tell you something about your category. People take the call. Right. They've heard of you. They know who Gardner is. So, Like she could literally say, okay, I'm going to pitch this guy. I'll just send him an invite (laughs) and 50% would show up for the meeting. Okay. (laughs) 
So just to some examples of like, that you come in with this experience, you're a great salesperson, you're really performing well, and you're stepping into this startup chaos. And you try your tactics, <laughs> and they don't no. work. Like, nobody, nobody knows who Dream Data right. is. Nobody wants that. Like, you send them a meeting invite, they go like, are you crazy? I'm never going to show up for that. So a, a lot of learnings about sort of how um, previous experience does not necessarily just translate into this new environment. You can say Santa, who is the other guy um, we hired, he came from it's like he came from a B2B SaaS background and from a very, very structured sale that was oh. very outbound driven, very disciplined. It's like, oh, 200 interactions a day, uh -huh. da, da, da. It just, you know, very, <laughs> very structured outbound. And, and that was initially our thesis was we were going to be outbound. Right. I don't know why we had that idea because we had no clue how to do it. But Santa knew. So that was the first thing we did was like we did like literally like four months of trying to do outbound uh. and nothing happened. It just uh. nothing, literally nothing happened. We did a couple of deals which were sort of inbound and actually uh, done by founders and the sales reps. They didn't do anything for four months. They struggle. They tried all their tactics. Nothing. And then what happened at the same time was because Stefan is a really good marketer, he was yeah. building up an inbound engine. Nice. And that was sort of overtaken. We got more and more inbound. And we saw how the outbound methodology we were trying, like one, it didn't work. And two, People like the two people they couldn't focus because we had so much inbound, and and still nothing happened because you were trying to do two things at the same time and not being very good at any. <laughs> yes, then that that, that story I have heard before, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> with with founders, yeah, trying to transition and trying all these different things and having people do too many things so they can't focus. I mean, it's it's a common story. Yeah, and then we went and said, okay. We looked at it and said, okay, let's go try something new. We said to Laura, okay, you no give up on the outbound tactics. Now you're just going to focus 100% on inbound. And then she started picking up inbound leads, mm, getting conversations, yeah. and actually like immediately after that started closing deals. Then she started closing deals. That was sort of beginning of 2021. And like to be honest, I feel really sorry for Sandra because we we wanted like like that this phase of the business is also about understanding what can you do, right? Experiment and learn. And I think it was important for us to know. Okay, one thing is we can do inbound. That's mm -hmm. great. It's a fantastic way of selling, and we love it. But what about if we need to do something faster than what we can build up on inbound? If we actually have to do outbound, can we make it work? So. We told Senda, sorry. They, I will also say, in all fairness, they were not on a commission model. They were on a like a fixed salary and then a warrant package, right? So they get benefit of the, the company succeeding yeah. and a decent pay, but no uh, commission. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important because you're asking people to do things that are probably, you know, I tell them to do something. I don't know if it works. They might think it won't work but they still have to do it. So you need to be fair in the compensation there because otherwise, how are you going to do it? So we told Sand, okay, we want you to continue to try to do Alba because we want to know if we're going to make it work. <laughs> and like we did um, another, uh, and I think one of the learnings there was we did a very complicated like uh, sequence. Mm -hmm. And at one point I sat down and I said, okay, 
I'm going to do the math on this. You've got one guy doing this sequence. He can, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was like, we would get an answer on whether we could make this work in six months. That was not okay. Mm. But that would have been a very solid answer. And I said, okay, that, that doesn't work. We need an answer in like a month. Right. So we need to do a sequence where we can, it might not be perfect, but at least we'll sort of know, is there something? Then we'll know if it works, we can probably improve it a lot. But does this work at all? And then we went for a, like a very short sequence, very disciplined. And we saw, okay, we could actually book like 10 hmm. meetings in a month yeah, from one doing full-time outreach. And that was for our metrics, it would work. And then we said, stop. And then he started doing inbound as well because now we had more inbound. Right. And now they're both selling sort of in an inbound motion. Uh, very sort of a lot of we, a lot depends on also on the product that you can try it. So you can sort of, People come for a demo. We can put them in the product. They can try it out for free. So we build a motion up around that. And now I think that's working now. And from sort of making the full transition, then business is sort of predictably growing yeah. the way we want it, which is 10% revenue growth, total revenue growth month on month. That's what you have to do in our stage. So we're doing that at the moment. That's great. You mentioned two very key things on hiring people into a startup that doesn't have structure in place and where it was the founders were doing all the selling and you didn't know what was going to work, whether it's going to be inbound or outbound. You thought you could do outbound. At first, that didn't work. And then you honed it in. But you first said that you um, wanted to hire people who were very entrepreneurial. And second, you said that you didn't pay them traditionally. So you didn't give them a base plus variable comp because you knew there was no way that they were going to make sales right away. And, you know, you've got to entice people to come work for you in this crazy, chaotic environment. So you paid them a good salary plus some warrants. So they had some skin in the game, which I just love. But tell me, what kinds of questions did you ask and how did you select people that were entrepreneurial? Like, how did you actually do that? Because I think there's a lot of people who want to hire entrepreneurial salespeople, but they fail at it. So how did you do it? I think it's a lot about asking people about failures that like I think entrepreneurial means you find solutions, you don't you keep trying. I think these are also great sales skills, of course. Like so so the the that it's I would I'll be honest and say I think we were insanely lucky. <laughs> we hired some great, great people. Um but it is like, that those first sales hires in a startup, they are sort of unicorn hires and they're super hard to do. And I think the main thing is we got it right. We were also patient. So I think you need some patience, but there are also things to look out for. Like if if the person desires, like you, but you need to bring them into the company. If they desire a lot of structure, and they, and they sort of push against the idea that hey, we actually need to be trying things. You can't expect structure yet. We're going to get structure later. If they push hard against it, so they, there are certain things to look out for. Whereas, like this is not going to work. You will work. You are a great salesperson because we saw you did your quotas in a like, really competitive place. So we know you're a great sales guy. It's not a question of whether you're a great salesperson. It's about are you fit for this stage. I think we were very lucky. Uh, but it's, it's, I think one thing is also are they actually 
willing to take that compensation package, which says you are not going to get a commission. You're going to get if like they both took a significant pay cut from their sort of untarget earning where they came from. Of course, if you add in the warrants and you sort of, we all expect this to go crazy, then they're going to be very rich and it's going to be great, but it's long-term thinking. And that sort of entrepreneurial thinking is also about sort of looking at something that's out there in the distance and going for that. And I think the, the compensation package, finding someone who wants that, we definitely, we had interviews, now I'm thinking back, we had those interviews where people like, yeah, they didn't like that. No. They wanted to come in, give me the sales playbook, ramp me up in three months, and then I want to do my, like, I don't know, what's that, like, you know, a competitive salary, I don't know what it's like, mm-hmm. it's probably lower in Copenhagen than the States, right? But it's, uh, you know, sales salaries are high. Yes, and yes. The, the, This idea of, of taking a significant cut for something that is like a dream, that's yeah. Uh, I think that's a sign of 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 wanting to do that. Yeah. So they have to believe, the, right? Went, they have to believe what you believe, and they have to be willing to live in some chaos and take a different comp structure with some future benefit that would be more than if they took a traditional comp structure. And I think, you know, it's important you mentioned, you know, you ask them about failures as much as you ask them about success. And one of the questions I always ask salespeople is, tell me about the biggest deal you ever lost. And I'm looking to see if they can tell me the circumstances around it and if they blame others or blame the market or, you know, or if they take responsibility for the failure of the sale, or, you know, if they can explain why the customer made a different choice. So all of those things tell me something about that person. And um, the other thing that I like to do with people coming into a situation that is less structured is ask them, well, how would you spend your first 90 days? We don't, you know, I tell them, we don't have a structured onboarding program. So you tell me what you would need to be successful in your first 90 days. And I have them outline that. And if they can tell me that they know how to ramp themselves up, then I know that they can be successful without a lot of structure. So I think those are important things to look for. And then again, the way you decided to pay them was rather smart. And I think the failure a lot of times with salespeople because startups and even more mature companies tend to run through salespeople very quickly because they hire someone who maybe was successful at a previous uh, company, but that success may not directly transfer and they pay them 50% base and 50% commission. And it takes a long time to ramp them up. So the salespeople don't make as much money as they were used to making at their previous job. And then they go elsewhere, right? And you can't really blame them. Then they leave, right? You can't blame them and they leave for a good reason. And you'll and then you sort of you are like as a founder, yeah. you are in the middle of an experiment of like, how am I actually gonna take this product to market? What's my go to market? And you don't want them to leave. Right. So you need patience on both sides. You do. You even really if they're do. failing. And and I will say one thing is that you meet then on that journey. I talk to a lot of sales leaders and they go like, oh, but they haven't closed any uh, revenue. Right. You should fire them. And I was like, no. well, it's not fair. I mean, I didn't give them 
the tool, like they're used to having tools. Right. They are helping me build those tools. So it's unfair. Yeah. So let's say once we hit something that was repeatable and predictable, they both transition to a traditional compensation. And now they're making a lot more right. money for sure. Right. But they are in a much more traditional right. pace, pay, like a compensation structure. And because now we had sort of what you could say, the structure of a sales playbook, maybe it wasn't like a beautiful one we could present <laughs> to someone. Then once we had done, I think we'd done just a couple of months of predictable, like this works. Then we went out and hired uh, a sales director ah. to come in and sort of somebody who actually, because we had honestly, I can't coach a sales rep. I don't know what to say, except I can sort of coach on enthusiasm and yeah. product and like whatever I know, but that's it. But what about the actual sales call, the negotiations? Like, what about mm -hmm. like, okay, I we did like MedPick qualification, but it's something I read in a book. <laughs> I've never done it. I read it in a book, right? So we brought in someone, Martin, who's actually done it before because now there was structure. And now he's looking at the structure, improving it, building the sales playbook. And now we started hiring people. We can hire more junior people, mm -hmm. like awesome people. But they're onboarding into now. They are onboarding into something that works. Right. There's a product that now. There's a product that works. There is a sales play. It's not you know. It's not. It's a small company. There's still lots of chaos, but there is someone who can teach you how to sell the product now, based on the experiences those two other guys made for us. Right. So that's the like. <laughs> It's been super exciting and I've never done anything like it before, but it's like, uh, I think we approached it a bit like we built, I came from a product background. So this experimentation learning process was something I took with me into to, to doing this, but many learnings. Like we hired at some point early on a really, really great sales guy. He is awesome. He ran sort of a, a sales team in Ireland for an American company, and they were doing like 100K ARR per rep. Like, that's really good. I'd love to do that, right? But that was a brand. They were a brand. Mm -hmm. They could do something different. And that, that's sort of like, you know, he, he didn't get that, hey, I, he didn't get the situation that it was so different. So I think as a, like when you're in this early stage, mm -hmm. if you can find people that understand that very often the actual thing they did before will not trend, like what you said, it will not translate directly into this new setting. You need to be able to understand like what was it that I did in the old setting that made this work? Like what was the process I went through to understand what does work? And then apply that. That's really it. Like respect that this is something different, especially like startup is it's the product doesn't work. Like nothing works, you know, <laughs> nothing works. Right. When, you, do have to you still have to, you know, you know, when you're, you're demoing, like if you're, you know, chances that there'll be a release while you're demoing and there'll be hiccups, like as a sales rep, of course you can cover for that, but it happens a lot in a startup. Oh yeah. Yeah. You do have to be flexible and you have to understand and uh, be able to cover with, with your clients and say, yes, we are a startup and this is how it works and we're still upgrading and, and uh, explain to them that, 
you know, the basic product works, but there are some features and functions that are going to have glitches in them. I mean, it's just part of being a startup and companies understand that. But when they want what you have, they're, you know, they're willing to work through that with you many times. So I want to kind of go down a path with you. You've built this sales organization in a very short period of time, 18 months. You did it in a, a really excellent way, in my opinion, even though, of course, there were some things that didn't work, but you found two people, you they two people with patience, you had patience, and you worked together to make it successful. And then you brought in a leader. And I think that's a really important thing because a lot of uh, CEOs and company leaders want to get sales off their plate as quickly as possible, which I understand because as a CEO, you have many jobs to do at a company. And if you're the only one selling, you're never going to scale, right? Plus, you won't be able to run your company efficiently. So it's necessary to bring people in, but many people want to give away the job of leading sales too quickly, and they don't really know what that job is or how it's going to work. And I applaud you for you know, keeping that role of sales leader while these two salespeople were learning, while you were all learning together. And you figured out something that worked. And then you said, okay, now we can bring in a sales leader. Um, that was really very smart of you to do that. And I think a lot of people rush to bring the sales leader in. And then they, I had talked to one CEO who had gone through, you know, three sales leaders in three years. And because they, they weren't ready, I, I said, wow, do you see a pattern here? Because she wanted to tell me, you know, these sales, sales leaders didn't know what they were doing. Like she had lost a belief that there could be sales leaders out there in the world that could do the job. And I said, I think the problem is you. <laughs> I think that you don't have um, a setup for success for a sales leader here. And so it's going to be hard for anybody to succeed, no matter how good they are. Uh, so I think that that was really awesome that you waited until you had that set up pretty good and then brought somebody in who knew how to coach salespeople and hire a team and bring them on once you had a repeatable process. But my question for you is this. Um, now that you have given sales over to this sales leader, what role do you still maintain in sales as the CEO of the company? For sure, I'm I'm still formerly the person heading sales. So I have a sales director, so I spend a lot of time with Martin, right? He is the, my, the, the person of my direct reports that I work the most with. And I think what you say about giving up sales too early, I think I was a person who was scared of sales. But if you want to do a startup, you have to embrace it because you're not a startup with a pro then you're just a startup with a product and no money and that doesn't exist for very long so you need to love sales you need to learn to love to take your product to market and what's the point if nobody's buying and using your products the point is so there is still a lot of of work in sales uh for me and then of course as a founder all three of us are available for our sales people like if you as the founder is not someone that your salespeople want to bring to a sales call, go and do something. Right. That's it. <laughs> then you are not a useful founder. Like if your salespeople don't want to bring the CEO or like we have three founders, the CEO or the CTO or the CMO on the call to close a big deal, go do something else. Then you're not 
you're not doing your job. You have to be there for those salespeople. And that's scalable. Like we're doing uh, three to four deals a month at the moment. We'll take that to maybe, let's say, 20 deals in a year. Like what's the problem? Of course, you can be on those sales calls when they're late stage and help close the deal. But you're not running the deal. Right. Like it, that is a professional, that's a professional process that's scalable. And of course, at some point, you're going to run out of founder hours. But then you'll have other senior people right. in the company. That, then you'll have your VP sales. Yes. You'll have your VP something in marketing that we created. And they will step in and do that. But if those founders are not there and requested on sales calls, um, then it's bad. So that's the rule. <laughs> yeah, I love that so much because I think you're right that some founders don't want to be on sales calls and they want to give it up as soon as they possibly can and not have anything to do with it. And that is a huge mistake. Um, for one thing, again, you're still an unknown, you're still early stage. And so these larger companies who buy from you want the comfort of knowing the people who founded the company. Uh, that doesn't mean you're orchestrating the sale or actually closing the deal. Your salespeople do that. But you're getting on the calls or going to the meetings to meet with the appropriate people that are going to buy from you, the higher level people who you can strategize with and give them that comfort of knowing that you have a solid team and you have a solid product and that you're going to work with them. Um, people feel much more comfortable buying from a startup if they can know who those founders are. So it is critically important. And then also, you're an asset. You're an asset absolutely. to the salesperson. And, and you have to be available. That's right. The salespeople need to learn how to use their senior leadership appropriately to position them so that everyone is comfortable and the, the risk tolerance, you know, a lot of people don't tolerate a lot of risk, but you can mitigate some of that by allowing them to know the founder. So it's really important. And as you said, as the company grows and changes, it's not scalable for you to, the founders to be on every call, but there'll be other senior leaders who can do that as well. And then there will always be some times when they're selling to a very large company or a very important you know, into a very important situation where a founder will need to be there and be connected at the highest level with the right people. And I think that's one of the things about the complex sale is helping salespeople understand how to position the founders and the senior leaders to help them close a deal, not do the work for them, but to help make people feel comfortable. That is something I think we... I wouldn't say that we have a great recipe, but for sort of doing a lot of these situations where you also sort of, the salesperson also has to learn, yes, this is the CEO, but it's my sales call. I, like he is there as an asset. I have to control him or the CTO, or whoever I brought to this call. You tell me what you want from me on this call because it's your deal. That's right. And then I can be helpful. Uh, so I think there's sort of, just like helping out, like being helpful and and don't get in the way. <laughs> That's the other the other right. the other big thing <laughs> as a founder, you you should help yourself with this. Don't get in the way. That's important. Yeah, the pre-call preparation, right? That's what makes that possible. So if you are a CEO and your salespeople ask you to be on a call, you make sure that they schedule time to prepare you for that call, yeah, right? Exactly. So, I mean, we're a small company, so we sit next to each other. So they 
they yeah. come over, we talk. <laughs> so it's not that formal, but that is what has to happen. And somebody has to sort of brief you on like, what's going on here? Why am I here? What's the point? And then you go in, you perform, you do your thing and the deal closes. It's good. <laughs> right, right. It's it's wonderful thing. And I, I love the way that you're doing that. I want to ask you about referral selling since you mostly do inbound and a lot of people are struggling with outbound today. You're not the only company. I mean, when you're an unknown, outbound is hard. You have to send a lot of messages. You have to have a lot of great content. Uh, You have to be extremely persistent. You have to use the phone and email and mail and social media. And I mean, it's hard work and it takes a long time. Um, so if we can get inbound, you know, do the demand gen, get those people interested and have them calling us and asking us to meet. Of course, it's a far superior, right? But the thing is that um, we often miss the opportunity to get referrals. Yeah. And I think that that's something that we just don't think about. We think outbound, we think inbound, but what about referrals? So how is your company using the success you've built so far to get introductions from the people who now know you and love you to others versus having to, you know, do it cold. Yeah. So I think like the fundamental approach there also because the deal size is, is not massive. So we do a lot of say what you could call social proof. So we encourage every like everybody that pays for a product, we do a lot of work to get them to write reviews of the product tell other people about the product what does it do for them how are we like what what are we like to work with are we nice people do, are we supportive are we just going to leave you hanging when you have a problem what are we like so we do a lot of work on on reviews basically like reviews and i think for anybody in b2b especially b2b saas if you're not doing like g2 captura like those platforms you're missing like a very big very cheap opportunity in terms of driving referrals. So that's a very big one. Then another one is because we are sort of a tech product, we do sort of, but that's not customer referrals, but that's referrals from tech partners. So some of the- Sure, absolutely. Those are great. We integrate technologies. So we are available in those marketplaces and that drives referrals as well. But I would say for me, if I was going to, this also has to do with our like ideal customer profile and the persona we're selling to. We're selling to SaaS companies. We're selling to go-to-market people. And I can mm-hmm. tell you that go-to-market people in SaaS companies, they spend a lot of time on LinkedIn. They love being there <laughs> and they love interacting there. So if you are in that space and you're not very, very active on LinkedIn, then you need to talk to Steph. No, then you need to do it because there is so much opportunity there. And I would say LinkedIn for us, that's our outbound. We connect with people. We share. We share. We don't pitch, but we share and we try to be sort of helpful. And that drives market recognition of our brand, knowledge of who we are, and then eventually inbound. So that's our big like those are the big drivers of like I would say review platforms, um, LinkedIn, what you do for social selling, and um, tech partnerships, and then of course we do uh, paid because there is demand in the market for what we're doing. So there is sort of you have to have a strategy of sort of capture the demand that exists, and that is sort of like you buy you buy pre- precision keywords that are associated with demanding your product, and that drives in one as well. But we are. 
95% of our business is inbound, uh, driven from those channels, right? So that's, I think that's very, but again, when you say inbound, it's a bit like cheating because Laura and Sandra, they spend a lot of time on LinkedIn and that's just our outbound. They are outbounding like that. So they are, they are building the brand. They're building also a personal brand. I would also say, if you are a sales professional and you're selling into these, like that space, building a personal brand on LinkedIn is one of the most valuable things you can do. I, you know, I hope Laura, for instance, will never leave us, but she gets so many job offers in this space because she's so visible. <laughs> but that's yeah. the danger that you have. So if you're putting your best people, the better they are, the more valuable they are, the more everybody will see that they're out there. And that's the danger. So you 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 can only do it if people actually like working in your company, otherwise they'll leave. Right, and you have to keep them liking working for your company and provide the things that make their job interesting for them. So many people talk about pay and lots of other things affiliated with retention of employees, but people want an interesting job and they want to work with fun people and they want to solve challenges, you know, hard, they want to solve hard problems. So we, we have to think about that. Are we providing that kind of environment for these very smart people? If we are, they'll stay, right? But I love what you said about them building their personal brand on LinkedIn, because as you know, I have quite a brand on LinkedIn and, a, and lots and lots of followers. And it's been, you know, extremely important to building my presence and my practice, right? And people find me this way. And a lot of people are still not sure about LinkedIn. I think it's crazy because that's exactly how you can drive that inbound. And so I'm glad that your team is doing that. What else I love about LinkedIn is I can see who knows who. And so I, if I see, oh, Lars knows this other CEO that I might want to interview for my podcast, I can message you real quick. Hey, Lars, how well do you know Ben? Do you know him well enough to ask him if he'd like to be on my podcast? And you'll tell me yes or no, right? And then I get an introduction. And salespeople can do the same thing. If there's a company that they've been interested in and following and they want an introduction, they can see whether they know someone on LinkedIn who has a connection and they can ask, you know? And of course, sometimes we don't know the people we're connected to on LinkedIn, but a lot of times we do and we can make that introduction. And, and I think that is so valuable. I mean, it's been a, like a great pleasure. Yeah. So thank yeah, thank you so much for, for joining me today. And just before we part ways, I know now you have a sales leader and a couple of salespeople and you're hiring more. You mentioned that you're going from around 30 people to 100. Um, that's going to be a huge impact, a huge difference for you. But, um, you know, just before we go, tell us just a little bit about what your plans are for your future sales growth yeah. and how some things you plan to do to intrigue your customers even more to bring them in. Yeah, I, I so so on the sales team, I think what we built in Copenhagen now is sort of like a foundation of scalability. So now the 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 big thing now is actually put sort of the building blocks in place for something that's highly scalable. So actually like one sales team, two sales teams, and then once you have that, then you have a structure that works. Now you can do more sales teams. So that's one big thing. And then the other big thing is that because of the inbound nature of our go-to-market, we actually have a, a, a fair amount of a business in the U.S. 
we wouldn't have had like if we had gone strictly outbound, we wouldn't have had that. But we have a lot of inbound, so we have a lot of interest from the U.S. So we're going to put sort of our first presence in the U.S. That's the big thing for us to to build sort of a foundation to scale on in the U.S. Those are the two big things we're doing in sales now. And that's going to be like super exciting. And then, yeah, many other things, but the, 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 that's, those are the key points there. Yeah, it's going to be crazy exciting. And then just scale, 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 sell, sell, sell. It's going to be crazy. Well, I really look forward to, forward to watching your journey continue and to seeing how you grow. Thanks again for being on the show. Hey, thanks, Alice. Thanks for having me. It's been a huge pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to Sales Talk for CEOs. You can find me at alicehyman.com. Be sure and connect with me on LinkedIn and let me know that you heard the show. If you found value in today's episode, please subscribe, write a review, and share the show with another CEO.